Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today's conversation is going to be of particular interest to those of you who are interested in yoga and specifically to those of you who are really interested in exploring the richness of the yoga tradition beyond the physical practice, though Jason and I also talk about that, but really in light of the historical and cultural evolution of that practice. That is part of Jason's research at the Hatha Yoga Project. He's a professor at the at SOAS, which is the School of Oriental and African Studies, which is part of the University of London. And Jason really is one of the leading researchers in the world in this area for people who are interested in the history of yoga. So a little bit about Jason's background. Jason has a doctor of philosophy in oriental studies from Oxford University, where he studied under the supervision of Alexis Sanderson. For those of you who aren't as familiar, on this show, I've talked with a couple of I've had a guest, a couple of guests recently, Sally Kempton and Mark Schwema, who who are both very much rooted in the traditions of non-dual Shaiva Tantra or what's called Kashmir Shaivism. And it is really in that particular area that Alexis Sanderson is the preeminent scholar in the world, sort of considered the foremost scholar. And so uh, the fact that Jason had the opportunity to study under him as his thesis advisor at Oxford is a really big deal and says a lot about Jason's training and his uh, his background. And Jason has now gone on to be a successful professor in his own right and one who spends a good bit of his time from what I can gather in our conversation and from his blog, The Luminescent, bridging the gap between scholars and practitioners. And for those of us who are practitioners and art scholars, but really are, are thirsty for this kind of knowledge, people like Jason are really a resource to help bridge that gap because without a strong knowledge of Sanskrit, it really is impossible to to access that tradition. And so, you know, as someone who is, I suppose in many ways, first and foremost, a Sanskritist because he couldn't do the rest of his work without that knowledge, Jason provides a, a great service to the rest of us, along with people like James Malinson, who's a colleague of Jason's at SOAS. So with that said, you know, just a little bit of an overview of the conversation. At times, Jason and I get into the esoteric, but in terms of some of the texts that he studies, and, and that's certainly of interest to me and other people who really geek out on this subject. But, you know, I, I also brought it back. And I, I think we, we hit on some much bigger picture questions that would be of interest to anyone who certainly has gone through a yoga teacher training or is, is just very into yoga or in beginning to perhaps get into it beyond just the physical practice. We discussed the relevance of potentially and perhaps the degree to which he is emphasized or even maybe overemphasized in yoga teacher trainings as the sort of seminal text around which all yoga teacher training philosophy courses seem to be structured. And we talk about a number of other topics that are relevant and, and hot 
currently to those in the yoga community. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Once again, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact this will be of particular interest to those who are into yoga. But for those of you who it's not your main jam, perhaps this will be uh, an interesting sort of window into that world. So with that said, I now give you my conversation with Dr. Jason Birch. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. So how about you? Do you normally, do you spend a fair amount of time traveling, teaching workshops in addition to your scholarly work? And is this new that you're sort of spending time in Asia or have you been coming over here more in the last few years? Uh, well, the last year we've spent in uh, Asia, mainly India, looking for manuscripts um, at Indian libraries, so mainly South India, and working also in Pondicherry at the Ecole Francaise. There's a professor there, Dominic Goodall, who's very knowledgeable about the area that we're working in, so it's it's been very helpful to work there. Um, but we then, at the moment, we've, we've come to, to Tokyo for my wife, uh, Jacqueline, uh, to teach uh, several workshops and classes, and I'm giving also some public lectures uh, at the yoga studio that she's uh, working at. So that's primarily why, why we're in Tokyo. Otherwise, we've spent uh, more time traveling in uh, Europe, uh, giving lectures at various universities and attending conferences. And that uh, has a lot to do with the profile of the project that I'm working on, so as with Dr. James Mallinson, Dr. Mark Singleton, Dr. Daniela Bevelacqua. And yes, so we've done more in terms of teaching and giving lectures and attending conferences in Europe than India. But I suppose, yeah, Japan's a a slight exception there as well, as I'm, I'm giving a talk at uh, Rikoko University in Kyoto uh, next week. Uh, so that's unusual. Um, otherwise, uh, most of our time in India is, is, is spent doing fieldwork, visiting libraries, also photographing iconography uh, that's relevant to our work, um, consulting with various pundits and uh, scholars that we, that we meet who um, might be able to help us or know something of what we're researching. So your wife is also a researcher then. I didn't know if she was like a yoga asana teacher when you said she was doing a, a workshop, but it sounds like she's a researcher as well. Yeah, she's an independent uh, researcher and she teaches yoga. She's sort of combining those two things uh, at the yoga studio that we're, that we're visiting in Tokyo by teaching an asana sequence from one of the texts that we're editing for the Hatha Yoga Project. So that's uh, an 18th century text called the Hatha Vyasa Padati that is really the, the only pre-modern work that we know of that um, teaches complex asanas in uh, sequence. Uh, there are 112 asanas and they're taught in six sequences and it's you know quite clear that, uh, that the author intended these postures to be taught in sequences because they're described in terms of the transition from one posture to the next. So we've been looking at the history of this text and it's it's quite fascinating because it's connected to um, a compendium called the Sri Tapvaniti that was composed in uh, Mysore in the mid-19th century. And that work, the, the chapter on asana, has been published and translated by Norman 
Suyman uh, in, in his book, The Yoga Traditions of the Mysore Palace. And this uh, text, uh, of course, was known to Krishnamacharya, who was obviously aware of the asanas in it. In fact, I think his, his family still uh, preserves some drawings that, that were made from the Sri Tapvaniti of the, of the asanas uh, in it. So we've been looking at that connection because it's, it's, it's again, one of the few sort of links between a modern lineage and a textual source on asana that we're, that we're uh, researching. And it's quite clear, though, that in the Sri Tapvaniti, the sequence of postures has been lost. The redactor of the Sri Tapvaniti sort of took the postures out of order and they don't really connect together, whereas in the Hatha Vyasapadati, the sequence is very clear because uh, basically because of the way it's written, Often one pose will begin with the name of the previous pose. Uh, and as I say, the, the descriptions of the asanas are talking more about or indicating more the transition. So now that we know the sequence and uh, and also the context, uh, the, the Sri Tapvaniti only has the asana chapter, whereas the Hatha Vyasapadati places those asanas within a system of yoga that's quite similar to Ashtanga yoga. It starts with Yama Niyama then goes on to pranayama, dhyana, and samadhi. It's a little bit different. I mean, it is a hatha yoga text, so it's not a straightforward ashtanga format. It, it integrates the shatkama, the six therapeutic interactions, that, the interventions that are often taught in hatha yoga uh, texts. And there are also a few other divergences on food, and the uh, practice of vajroli mudra is very extensively uh, described so it, it's unusual and uh, it's an unusual work and it, it contains many details, practical details that are not in other works, including, of course, the, the extensive teachings on asana. So Jackie's uh, sort of putting together a, a workshop uh, that looks very briefly at the history and how it fits into to past yoga traditions, but then offers the students a chance to do some of the easier poses and you might say some of the small segments of, of sequences to let them sort of experience the practice and also to sort of see some of the ambiguities within the textual descriptions and the interesting relationship between the textual descriptions and the illustrations that are in the Sri Tapvaniti. Because the, you know, when the Sri Tapvaniti was written in the mid 19th century, it's likely that at least 50 or 100 years had passed since the Hatha Vyasapadati had been written. And so the artists who, were, who had the descriptions were also trying to interpret them and, and they often add information as they do the illustrations, they make assumptions and, and, and so forth. So when you compare them, and particularly when you try and do the asanas, you can, you can see what, what the description is saying and then also look to see whether the illustration is uh, confirming that or, or, or indicating that it's done differently. So all of these these aspects have, you know, have come from our work on the Atta Vyasapadati and we're now offering it you know, for a wider audience at uh, some yoga schools here in Tokyo but also in the UK and uh, Europe in the future. That's wonderful. Well, I have to say there seems to be growing interest within the yoga community for an understanding not only of the philosophy but also of the history of yoga and perhaps a, a good place to start if you're interested in in sort of 
weighing in on this a little bit, but you know, there's been you mentioned one of your colleagues, Mark Singleton, and you know, there's been sort of this discussion around how old exactly these what we consider the modern practice of yoga really started in terms of how much of yoga was sort of a physical practice, you know, vinyasa and a lot of these terms obviously have to be unpacked and I'll and I'll let you do that. But you know, I'm thinking of the disagreements in particular between Mark and like Christopher Tompkins, who, you know, and I know a lot of our audience, for example, is is not gonna be as much of a yoga geek on on that as, as me. So just to give a little bit of an idea and I'll let you explain it, but there's debate around whether these origins, the modern practice of yoga is relatively recent phenomenon as in the last hundred years. And it was influenced a lot by Western gymnastics and other forms of exercise or whether as Marx seems to have claimed or whether these practices as Christopher Tompkins seems to have claimed much, much older. And I'm curious, just from the research that you've been doing, obviously yours is a relatively more recent text. What is your impression in terms of the origins of what we consider yoga, asana, or vinyasa? How far do you think back this this physical practice really go as we know it today in terms of what really influenced Krishnamacharya? Yes, yes, it's an interesting question. And I think the first point that needs to be made, and this was really the central point to, to Mark's book, The Yoga Body, is that modern yoga is modern. Uh, it's been shaped by modern ideas, modern thinking, modern practices. And if one looks at that, there's, there's been tremendous uh, and very rapid uh, change and uh, development within yoga over the last 150 years. Of course, in, in the yoga that we practice, I suppose the yoga that's become global um, or transnational is, is the other term that's used. There are um, ingredients uh, that are quite old. There, there are techniques that do date back uh, over a thousand, even two thousand years. And there are texts uh, and many ideas that are that are used in um, the dialogue uh, and the thinking around uh, modern yoga. So it's it's it makes the history very interesting to sort of to trace some of the elements of modern yoga back to older traditions and then to sort of look at how they've, they've been reinterpreted or, or formed into new systems and synthesis since, you know, since they've been um, used in different contexts, you know, in, and in different cultures over the last uh, 100 years. Yes, the, just going back to the Hatha Vyasa Padati, that text is interesting because it does anticipate some of the salient features of modern yoga, particularly the emphasis on asana practice. It teaches 112 asanas. It's the largest section of the text. The idea of practicing complex asanas and sequences, um, the idea of movement. You know, this text uh, teaches moving asanas such as the upturned uh, dog pose, Shvartanasana, where the, um, the um, yogin sort of imitates an upturned dog, the way they sort of roll on their back by um, circling the knees in one direction and then the other direction. And this, the, the circular movement is, is a continuous movement. Many of the postures are like that. So movement is very important in the Hatabhyasaparati. There's also the use of props. There's a sequence of rope poses, 
Uh, there's even, according to the artists at the uh, Sri Tapanidhi, and it's, it was probably a fair assumption to make on their part, there's the uh, observation that at least one of the postures needs assistance in order to be to be done as it's described. Uh, so these these factors are seen in, in, in modern yoga, and but but of course. When you start to compare the Hatha Vyasa Padati carefully and um, detail by detail with, say, some of the sequences and postures that Krishnamacharya and his students taught, there are enormous differences um, as well. So, you know, it's it's likely that the Hatha Vyasa Padati inspired Krishnamacharya and, and maybe gave him some ideas about sequencing, for instance, the idea of going from... Um, shoulder stand to plow pose is in the Hatha Vyasa Padati and we see that in Ayanga um, Yoga and so forth. It could also be a coincidence, but it's it's likely that uh, Krishnamacharya um, looked at the Hatha Vyasa Padati and other texts and sort of like a, a magpie took a little bit from each and came up with his own system. And that system is quite modern in in many ways it's sort of uh, it's shaped by his circumstances particularly when he was at the Mysore Palace teaching groups of children yoga he had to adapt his system of teaching to that and perhaps that's where the vinyasa method was invented and, and sort of adapted so that he could keep children moving from one posture to another so they wouldn't get bored or distracted and then of course his his teachings change quite dramatically when he moves to chennai and starts teaching people one-on-one and uh, using yoga and ayurveda to cure people of various illnesses um, so the teachings of krishnamacharya in his early life are very different to those in, in his later life uh, and I suppose that's one thing we see about we see uh, when looking at the history of yoga that it, it, it can change dramatically uh, from one tradition to another uh, depending upon uh, the circumstances, the time period, the um, the religion and philosophy that uh, that shapes the, the, the practice. And that's that's happened very much in modern yoga. Perhaps in modern yoga, the difference is that the change. Um, has happened more rapidly, and the the sort of syntheses that are being created in modern yoga contain, uh, particularly now, such a, a wide variety of ingredients: so um, healing modalities and exercise systems and theories and so forth that are coming from outside of India, and that's new and exciting. Well, gosh, there's so many questions that I want to ask you. Perhaps I should I should pause for a second before I go there and maybe just allow you to just share a little bit more if you want to about, you know, the kind of research that you're doing at the moment. You, you started, and I actually like the way we've started by really talking specifically about this text, which is kind of an entry point for other discussions. But, you, you know, in our preparation for this conversation, you talked about how it sounds like generally you're doing a lot of work on Hathi and Raja Yoga and the relationship to earlier traditions of Tantra, both Shaiva and Vajrayana. And so I'm wondering if you can begin perhaps by talking a little bit about big picture about what that means and, and maybe explaining some of those ideas for folks who might be totally new to this discussion. Yeah, so uh, my research at the moment and, and that of the project is looking at the history of Hatha and Raja Yoga, which uh, which began around the 12th century. The, we start to find the early texts being composed around the 11th, 12th century and continue through to the 18th century. So the 
Patabiasapadati that I was speaking of earlier is one of the more recent works that, that, that we're looking at. But we're also looking at the very early works and we're looking at 10 works in total where we're collecting manuscripts uh, on each of them, collating the manuscripts, looking at the differences. You know, manuscripts are written by hand and, and they can be found sometimes for one text in various different parts of India. So when you sit down and you look at handwritten manuscripts of the same text, often there are significant variations. There are a lot of errors um, in many of the works. I mean, we're looking we're looking at material that's been very roughly scribed and um, uh, perhaps copied and recopied many times. So our job in editing the work is to look at the differences, uh, see what uh, we think might you know, how the text may, may have changed over time, uh, correct a lot of the errors, take out the scribal mistakes and so forth, and establish uh, a version of the text um, according to the history that we're, that we're looking at. So in many cases that involves looking at the text, how it was originally written, uh, but then at a later time if there's a different re redaction or recension, then also looking at, uh, at, at the way the text changed. Um, at other periods. So you mentioned, yes, that one of the one of the early works that we're looking at, the Amrita City, um, that um, Dr. James Mallinson and Dr. Peter Santo uh, from All Souls College at Oxford are editing at the moment. It's a Vajrayana work that doesn't teach Hatha Yoga by name, but it teaches the three mudras, Mahamudra, Mahaveda, and uh, Mahabandha, that became central to the sort of physical techniques of later Hatha Yoga texts. Um, these, these mudras involve the, the locks, the internal locks that are often taught in modern yoga. That's uh, the root lock, Mulabandha, where the pelvic floor muscles are squeezed. Uh, the chin lock, where the chin is placed on the chest, and the and Udhyana Bandha, where the, the navel is drawn in towards the spine as the chest is expanded. These three internal locks are used to sort of direct vitality within the body when the breath is uh, held. Um, so to give an example, in Mahamudra, one leg is extended and the other and the leg is uh, bent so that the heel presses against the perineum. The practitioner holds the foot of the extended leg with both hands, then breathes in, holds the breath in, contracts the uh, pelvic floor muscles and then presses the chin down onto the chest. And, and, and this, this practice is taught uh, for a Buddhist audience in the Amrita city. Uh, an, ex an exciting uh, development from my side of the research um, is that a, a Shaiva text uh, called the Amaraga Praboda, which we previously thought was probably composed in the 14th century, perhaps a century or so just before the Hatha Pradipika, you know, which is probably one of the more well-known Hatha Yoga texts composed in the 15th century. This text, the Amaraga Praboda, borrows verses from the Amrita city. But until recently, we thought the Amaraga Praboda was a compilation of various earlier Hatha and Raja Yoga texts because it contains um, verses from other texts and some citations. So we, didn't, we never thought that it was a particularly early work until recently. We, we found two manuscripts that have a different version of the Amaraga Praboda, a much shorter version. And the citations that... Uh, uh, and verses that are found in other works 
uh, are not in this short version. And in fact, the structure of this short version is much more cohesive than the longer version, which was published in 1954 um, by Kalyani Malak in a, in a book of uh, various Sanskrit uh, yoga texts attributed to Gorakshanath. Uh, so it, it seems that we've found a, an earlier version of the Amaraga Praboda, which was probably composed much closer to the time of the Imrita city. So now it, 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 it's become interesting to look at how the Buddhist teachings and background to the yoga practices of the Imrita city were adapted and changed for a Shaiva audience, uh, in, which, which is what we see in the Amaraga Praboda. And, of course, it's the teachings of the Amaraga Praboda on Hatha Yoga, this type of uh, um, physical yoga that, uh, um, uh, that's characterized by force, um, the force of um, moving prana into the central channel, the force of um, waking Kundalini up from her sleep and so forth. It's, it's this sort of adaptation of an earlier Buddhist um, work to formulate an early conception of Hatha Yoga that's become a, a new focus uh, of our work since discovering uh, this shorter version of the Amaraga Prabhuda. My answers might be a bit rambling. I'm, I'm not sure if, uh, if maybe I should keep them shorter and we have a bit more of a discussion, or are you happy for me to sort of talk? And if I do ramble, maybe you can sort of edit it a bit to cut out anything that's um, irrelevant. <laughs> No, this is fine, Jason. So when you're talking about the relationship of Hatha and Raja Yoga to earlier traditions of Tantra, both Shaiva, for example, um, my limited experience studying Shaiva Tantra, right? I'm, I'm thinking of people like Abhinava Gupta and Shema Raja, some of those teachers from the Kashmir area. What is the connection between, or is there a connection? If so, what, what sort of connection between that form of, of Shaiva Tantra and then later Hatha Yoga? Yes, well, there's a strong connection. We see it uh, very much in the terminology and the expression that are used in Hatha and Raja Yoga texts, uh, terms such as Rechika, Puraka, and Kumbhaka, uh, probably derived from um, Shaiva Tantric uh, traditions. Uh, we see it in the meditation techniques that are taught in Hatha and Raja Yoga texts, techniques such as Shambhavi Mudra, this uh, technique of um, keeping the eyes half open, half closed, uh, so one gazes out, usually with you know a meter or so in front of the body, but the meditative uh, focal point is internal. That, of course, Shambhu is another name of Shiva. It's likely that that meditation technique developed in earlier Shaiva traditions as a way of imitating the wide-eyed form of Shiva, and that technique is one of the uh, sort of important ways of achieving samadhi in Hatha and Raja Yoga texts. It's you know, mentioned, for example, in the fourth chapter of the Hatha Pradipika. Nādhano Sandana is also very important in Hatha and Raja Yoga traditions, the idea of fusing the mind with this internal resonance, the nāda, uh, there are very similar descriptions of this practice in early Shaiva Tantras, such as the Malini Vijayotra Tantra, uh, which is a text that uh, Dr. Somdev Vasudeva has worked extensively on and written, written a very informative uh, book, uh, which can be accessed on uh, academia.edu. These practices are quite similar in Hatha and Raja Yoga. There's the idea that uh, the yoga practice intensifies uh, this internal resonance, particularly pranayama, which enables the yogin to focus uh, the mind on the internal resonance. And this sound changes. It goes through usually 10 different uh, sort of, uh, uh, 
sounds from the gross ones in the beginning, various drums and so forth, through to very subtle sounds as the yoga becomes more and more immersed in it. The other connection, I mean, uh, the, an obvious connection is that, that often the sectarian orientation of Hatha and Raja yoga texts is Jaiva. Um, not always the case. There are also Vaishnava texts that, uh, that teach Hatha and Raja yoga. The practice of meditation, if, it's, if it is discussed in any detail in a Hatha and Raja yoga text, is um, very tantric. Um, it's usually the visualization of a, of a deity. Or if it's the practice of concentration, it's the tantric practice of focusing the mind on one of the, the five elements, earth, water, fire, and so on, which are, are situated at various places in the body. These sort of practices are mentioned in earlier Shaiva texts. They were done in order to bring about control of those elements, which would then lead to certain supernatural powers. So if you focus on the water element in the body, it means that you can gain control of the water element and never die by drowning. If you gain control of the earth element, you can um, paralyze people and um, creatures and so forth. Hatha and Raja Yoga is not, so, not as concerned with supernatural powers as earlier tantric traditions, but they're certainly uh, there. Usually the supernatural powers, or, or you might say the supernatural effects from practicing Hatha and Raja Yoga are more mundane. They, they, they concern more the healing of various illnesses um, and, and so forth. Uh, but yes, no, I, I would say that earlier Shaiva traditions had a, a significant uh, influence on Hatha and Raja Yoga. The, the interesting thing, though, that we, that we don't see much of in earlier Shaiva traditions are the physical practices that, uh, that are taught in Hatha Yoga. Please say more about that because, yeah, this is so central to this discussion on, you know, the connection between modern yoga and earlier forms of yoga. So please say more about that. Yeah, so that, that was when I started to uh, research Hatha and Raja Yoga with um, uh, Alexis Sanderson, um, who was my supervisor at Oxford for the yoga text that I, that I was working on, which was called the Amanaskar. Um, I was surprised, particularly when I spoke to him and, uh, and we read some tantras together, I was surprised at how little, um, how, how sort of few the references were to the same sort of physical techniques that came to define Hatha Yoga. And these are usually the physical mudras, 10 of which are taught in some of the early texts, and other texts just teach a few of them, or they integrate them with the practice of pranayama, such as the three locks that I mentioned a moment ago, the chin lock, the root lock, and Udhyana Bandha. But there are others, such as inverting the body, turning it upside down, Viparita Karani, which, of course, in modern yoga is known as headstand or shoulder stand. Uh, these type of practices are not uh, found in uh, Jaiva Tantras, not in any significant way. Uh, and, of course, um, James Mallinson has done a very good job in sort of finding evidence for these practices in other works, usually just uh, um, references to ascetics, perhaps uh, ascetic traditions that didn't leave a written uh, record of their own, references in epic literature, but even going right back to um, the Buddhist Pali Canon uh, for some of these sort of physical practices that were used uh, in asceticism. So it seems that Hatha Yoga was formulated uh, perhaps within a tantric milieu as a way of taking the ascetic practices that were there for professional ascetics and uh, sort of combining them with uh, tantric conceptions of the body and, I suppose, tantric 
understanding of how me certain mechanisms within the body could be manipulated to bring about liberation or freedom from samsara. Uh, and, and the, of course, one of the, uh, the outcomes of this uh, process of sort of integrating physical practices with, with um, tantric teachings on meditation and so forth uh, was that it created types of yoga that had a far wider appeal than the older ascetic traditions. So the, the techniques, the physical techniques, were much uh, gentler. They didn't involve stressing or harming the body uh, to the extent uh, that uh, that you can see with um, such as uh, you know sort of standing on one leg for an extended period of time or holding the arms up above the head, uh, lying on beds of thorns and so forth. It seems the idea of afflicting the body uh, was rejected in early Tantra, and, and that's probably got something to do, uh, was rejected, as, should I say, in early Hatha Yoga, and that's probably got something to do with the Tantric uh, idea of using the body, uh, looking after it to bring about a, know, to either awaken Kundalini or move prana into the central channel and so forth to then bring about the, the soteriological aims um, that Tantricas were interested in. Yes, yeah, so that's one of the distinguishing features of Hatha Yoga, that it, that it has this sort of strong tantric uh, flavor, but at the same time teaches physical techniques that are not so prominent in earlier tantric traditions. And that seemed to create a new type of yoga that from the 12th century onwards uh, uh, grew in, its, uh, in the repertoire of its techniques, uh, seemed to become more uh, popular, uh, spread throughout India, of course, it, it resulted in texts such as the Hatha Pradipika being written, which contain many different practices in it. And then those texts were cited widely in yoga compendiums that were written after the 15th century. And then as scholars such as Christian Bui have shown, by the 18th century, you see Hatha Yoga texts, early Hatha Yoga texts being cited in Brahmanical works, particularly the Upanishads, usually as an auxiliary of asana or pranayama. But this process of being integrated in mainstream Brahmanical work shows that by that period, physical yoga had become a sort of a, um, a widespread notion within yoga in India, a sort of more of a mainstream practice and was widely accepted. And did you say that was by the 18th century? It had become mainstream within India? Yes, yes, at least by the 18th century and, and, and earlier in, in some other instances. But we see more and more um, evidence for that in the 17th and 18th century. Okay, interesting. This leads me to a question that I want to ask you, you know, and I'm, I'm conscious of sort of uh, our conversation will kind of like expand and contract a little bit for those who like at some points are super love going into these texts in the esoteric like I do and also thinking about really hitting some maybe big picture questions that people in the yoga community who might be newer to these discussions have. But I'm, I'm thinking you talked about how the origins of what modern yoga is really in so many ways has these tantric origins, you know, it, they were very much related to Kundalini and the opening of the central channel. And they're fundamentally tantric in, in so many ways, yet the quintessential text to read in the introductory yoga teacher training is Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And I'm wondering to what extent you think that really makes sense that teachers and students really focus on this text versus other ones as a starting point and why or why not? Mm, yes, that's a good question. I think it 
it's just a fact. It's, it, it, it's part of modern yoga. And I think the reason for it is that many of the gurus, many of the Indian gurus that have been pioneers in reviving physical yoga and um, transmitting the teachings to the West were Brahmins, uh, Patanjali, Yoga Shastra has always, I think, remained an important uh, text on yoga for the Brahmins, particularly um, those that are well-educated and can read the level, the high level of Sanskrit that that text uh, requires. So, of course, when people like Krishnamacharya, uh, Swami Shivananda, Kuvalayananda, and so forth, were formulating their teachings and their systems of yoga, uh, yes, the physical practices were very important, but obviously for them the framework that they preferred was Patanjali's uh, Ashtanga system. And from a historical point of view, that's that's not surprising because it, it was happening in the 16th and 17th century with some of the, the Brahmanical yoga compendiums that I mentioned a short while ago. These were texts that uh, were just on yoga more generally understood, not on any particular type of yoga, but they nonetheless tended to favour um, the Ashtanga system. They often um, structure their chapters or their discussion around uh, each of those auxiliaries. And they were interested in synthesizing Patanjali's teachings with uh, the Upanishads, the uh, Puranas, and the Hatha and Raja Yoga texts. And this is the same sort of, um, the same well, partial set of ingredients, pre-modern ingredients, you, did, uh, you might say, that we see with people like Krishnamacharya and Swami Shivananda. On the one hand, they're, they're very happy to talk about the Upanishads, the Vedas, texts that were part of their tradition. But then, of course, they will mention Patanjali's yoga, Hatha and Raja yoga, and teach physical practices associated with, with, with those traditions. Um, so it's it's a type of blend that it seems Brahmins are quite, uh, Brahmin Indian yoga gurus are quite happy with. Yeah, a couple of thoughts as you explain that. So one thing I think possibly this could speak to, you know, the fact that this text of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and his system of Ashanga Yoga, which just to summarize it really briefly for people in the audience who might have no idea what the system is and feel free to correct me or elaborate, Jason. But, you know, asana or the physical practice basically plays a very, very small role and it is ultimately about preparing the body for meditation and specific kind of meditation or highest state called samadhi. But the, the important point is that physical practice plays a very small role and it's really much about a larger system of uh, preparing the body for meditation and awakening. And, and the fact that it was so important for these people like Krishnamacharya, and I'm thinking Patabi Joyce, you know, I know because I've practiced Ashtanga where you do that in invocation chant that specifically invokes Patanjali. The fact it was so important for them speaks to their view of just quote unquote yoga generally and the fact that no matter how vigorous the physical practice was or how much more emphasis they may have placed quote unquote on the physical practice, that ultimately it really was a system about towards the spiritual or towards awakening or towards preparing the body for meditation or whatever, as opposed to simply a physical practice or exercise. Yes, yes, that's true. Uh, I think even though in the general scheme of the Tanjali's teaching, uh, the section on asana is quite small, I think it's nonetheless 
very important. It's it's a, an indispensable component of the Ashtanga system. You can't sort of take it out or bypass it. And I th- I also think that the teachings, the three sutras that uh, that explain asana, are also profound enough and rich enough to uh, justify, um, to some extent, the emphasis that modern modern yoga places on on the work. You know, it sort of says that posture should be um, steady and comfortable, and that's a combination that one can work with in seated as uh, and, and non-seated poses. There's also the interesting idea that, uh, I suppose, as far as a seated pose is concerned, um, uh, it is perfected or uh, by the practice of meditation, whereas the Ashtanga system as a whole indicates that Asana is one of the components that leads to or supports the practice of meditation. The sutra on asanas also turns that on its head and says the practice of meditation um, helps to perfect posture. Uh, and that's, that's I think, uh, an astute observation and important teaching. So I, I think Patanjali you know, has a level of sophistication that um, enriches the practice of asana and that's why it plays a role in modern yoga. That's why teachers today still find it useful. Uh, yes, the Sankhya, the Sankhyan metaphysics of Purusha and Prakriti and trying to see the difference between spirit and matter may not uh, apply or be so appealing to people today, but nor were those metaphysics appealing to people in the 16th and 17th centuries. So when they um, integrated Patanjali's yoga with into their compendiums on uh, yoga, they... Um, usually uh, interpreted it from the point of view of the Upanishads. Uh, in other words, they interpreted it more from a Vedantic point of view that uh, that they you know rather than Purusha and Prakriti, they would speak of Brahman, this sort of concept of uh, the absolute and underlying principle that uh, pervades everything. They, they many of the the authors of the Yoga compendiums that I'm thinking of in the 16th and 17th century took us was sort of connected to the to the tradition called Advaita Vedanta that argues that ultimately um, everything is one and that the universal self and the individual self are the same. Uh, whereas Patanjali's metaphysics contradict that, but, but the authors of the 16th and 17th century had no uh, problem with that. They just reinterpreted Patanjali's teachings to suit their needs, and that's what uh, happens today. Um, people take the parts of the Yoga Sutra that they find helpful. The Ashtanga system itself, of course, combines the physical practice with an ethical side. There's, uh, I'm using the word ethical very broadly, but there are, there are of course, guidelines on um, how to interact with other people. There are then preliminary practices, uh, such as cleanliness and so forth, that uh, relate uh, to the practice of yoga. And then it, of course, provides a, a clear integration between the physical practice of asana with the breathing exercises and then the practice of meditation. And the practice of meditation, the, the discourse around that within Patanjali is much more sophisticated than in other traditions, such as Raja Yoga tradition. Often uh, the uh, practice of samadhi is um, quite simple in the way that it's described. You just, for example, practice Shambhavi Mudra, keep the body and the eyes still until the mind dissolves, until there's no more thinking, and then that's Raja Yoga. But of course, Patanjali has two types of samadhi, uh, one with an object, one without. There are then four levels of the, uh, the first type with an object, 
So it's 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 much more sophisticated, and, and again, I think that has suited many of the Brahmin gurus who've taught taught yoga in the 20th century to you know on an international stage, as well as the yoga teachers that are teaching yoga now. So one thing that I'm kind of thinking of, and it, it made me think of it when you talked about samadhi, and I'm thinking of that sort of ideal in in Patanjali's system as a form of kaivalya. You know, it's kind of once again, feel please by all means ex- correct my uh, limited understanding, but it is a it is a form of attainment that is it's a kind of isolation or aloneness, and it's Patanjali's system is is rooted in a renuncia tradition, and I'm getting this from a couple of the the teachers that I've studied with who focus a lot on tantra, in particular Paul Mula Ortega and uh, Harish Wallace. And they've talked about how, in some ways, it doesn't make as much sense for to study Patanjali because there's so much of modern yoga is influenced by these renuncia traditions. Yet none of us are ascetics, right? We're all householders, and that's why, in a lot of ways, tantra and some of the visions that they outline makes a lot more sense than what Patanjali is talking about. So I actually appreciate what you just said on on why in many ways it is relevant. Do you mind speaking to that kind of distinction that Patanjali and the kind of larger renunciate school in which he's embedded speaks to and how that might be different and in some ways applicable to the householder lifestyle of, of most modern yogis? Yes. Well, just to add that uh, I think the text remains relevant because it's being re- reinterpreted. And one of the reasons why it's so easy to reinterpret is because of the sutra style. The sutra style is very pithy. It just gives you, really, the, the sutras are like subject headings. And it's only when you start to read the commentary, the basha that's written between each sutra, that you get the main ideas, uh, an explanation of the main ideas that uh, uh, Patanjali was dealing with. Now, in teaching the Patanjali's yoga in the 20th century, there's not many people who are um, teaching uh, their students, in other words, a broad audience, the contents of the basha, because the basha, the commentary, is very complicated. And also, you know, that's where a lot of the archaic ideas are sort of are harder to reinterpret if you if you're reading them in, the, in a fuller form in the basha. So if you take the sutras, um, they're pithy enough to then enable a teacher to add their own commentary, even even in cases where the concepts, as you say, are not so easy for a householder to follow or understand. So, you know, yoga is a cessation of mental activity, and that cessation is, according to the 12th Sutra, brought about by practice and vairagya, by detachment, difference. Of course, practice is very easy for yoga yoga teachers to explain because they're teaching the practice, postures and breathing exercises and meditation. Uh, Vairagya, though, in in its full form, a a sort of uh, detachment from not only the world but family and uh, society, work, all those sorts of things, is something that modern yoga practitioners would not be willing to follow. So therefore, Vairagya can be reinterpreted to mean a sort of an indifference perhaps towards the results of practice or you know, to keep a greater equanimity, not to be shaken by worldly events and interactions with other people. There's much greater scope for using those teachings in a meaningful way to a modern, uh, for a modern audience. But the commentaries 
on the Yoga Sutra, whether it's the Basha or even even others, you know, haven't played a role because they're, they're, they're more difficult to reinterpret. Now, the interesting thing is if you want a historical understanding of the Yoga Sutras, in other words, if you ask the question, well, how did Patanjali understand uh, these concepts like Vairagya and so forth, then you have to read the Basha and, and that takes you into a world that is very different to our own, where um, people were living uh, outside the village and were practicing celibacy and uh, extreme forms of non-violence where they wouldn't harm a, you know, a fly or an ant. So that's the world that I find interesting because it's so different to our own and in a sense it, it indicates what yoga can be, you know, how, how diverse um, it has been over the centuries, uh, how it can adapt and adjust used in um, many different social um, circumstances and really that's um, something one must keep in mind with yoga even though the text like Patanjali's yoga uh, was written for renunciates yoga has pervaded all strata of India's society you know from the renunciate traditions right up through to kingly uh, circles and courts and so forth, the aristocracy. It, it's been embraced by um, Brahmanical traditions, the priestly caste, uh, uh, in varying ways, but it's integrated if a system of uh, yoga is not, not taught, at least yogic techniques have been integrated since the time of um, the Upanishads. So to understand that, I've, I find that over the years, I suppose I've, I've found it necessary to try to understand these texts as they were written and then how they were reinterpreted, not just today, but throughout the centuries. Right. You know, once again, a couple of things to say. You're giving me so much to think about, Jason. I'm really enjoying this. You know, that conversation between the renunciate and householder traditions, I'm just thinking back. I mean, I guess in my, certainly the Gita is, a, is an early example of that, right? T trying to speak to, you know, that need to kind of come down from the mountaintop and, and how do those of us who have to live in the world actually find some kind of awakening. And, and as you were speaking about this, that's what I thought back to is, oh, yes, of course, the Gita, that was starting that conversation from way earlier, yeah. you know. I also love the way that you're talking about, and it's just kept coming up again and again, is the way that the yoga tradition is, it's constantly changing. It was reinterpreted. The, I, the reality is there never was this kind of linear line of yoga, this monolithic idea of yoga. And I think it's it's such an important reminder to get out there to people in the yoga world today because I see there are a lot of people, I noticed this in online discussions, for example. I was just talking with another yoga teacher yesterday who got caught up in this, in that people want to, there's a desire among the crowd who's very interested in yoga history and philosophy, and I absolutely include myself in that crowd, but they want to appeal to authority and they want to appeal to texts, which is very typical of people. Um, we see this in, in many religious traditions. I know that's an important part of the tantras is appealing to earlier texts as authorities. But the problem is, I mean, there are a number of problems. One is their understanding of what texts need to be appealed to, right, such as Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, are themselves a result of a construction of a Western understanding, right, as to which texts seem to be most important, or they're a result of a Western understanding that was bequeathed from a specific and small group of Brahmins, such as Krishnamacharya and Patabi Joyce and Iyengar. 
and that's fine. But I think there's this desire for certainty and for solidity. And there's just this linear perception of the yoga tradition that kind of often gets lost in the modern discussion of those of us who, who like myself, who practice yoga and we want to understand the tradition. So there's a good intention there, but we're not Sanskritists. We're not scholars of religion. Insofar as I have any appreciation for this, it's because I was a, a history teacher myself for just high school history. So I appreciate how, you know, history is constantly reinterpreted. But I'm wondering if you can kind of comment on that in terms of the discussions and sort of the rhetoric you hear out there and whether it's online forums or sort of the comments and questions you receive when you teach in a to a workshop in the yoga community. Yes. Well, I, I suppose the first thought that comes to mind is that there's a lot of power play involved in, um, you know, when people start citing texts uh, as authorities and and referring to particular teachings from those texts as being more important to others. I mean, I, I suppose the difference is that between theology and um, secular scholarship, where, um, where you might have a teacher who's trying to formulate a system of yoga and teach it to people, teach it to a class of students, in order for those students to, to attain a, a better level of well-being, uh, I suppose, greater enjoyment of life and all those sorts of things. And so the teacher will look at those students, decide what what might work, what teachings uh, are important, and then use the texts perhaps to provide some authority, uh, provide some depth, uh, some instruction on those on what they're teaching, to provide a point of reference, I suppose. And that's fine. That's that's how yoga has, has spread around around the world. Um, I. I can um, contrast that uh, firstly with secular scholarship, which is looking not so much at how to make yoga work for a group of people and to solve their problems, but it's looking more at how the history developed and how a text such as Patanjali's Yoga Shastra was understood, say, in the 5th century when it was composed, how it was then adapted uh, and integrated with teachings from the Upanishads in the 16th and 17th centuries and so forth. History is asking questions like that and it doesn't really concern itself with um, with creating a system of yoga or even thoughts around yoga that might be um, salutary for, for people who are practicing it. It's just really, in a sense, trying to educate people about, you know, about the past developments uh, in yoga. In terms of theology, where it, 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 it seems to become... Uh, dangerous or, or even um, you know, aggressive you know, people are arguing about as you say one of the most important uh, authoritative texts and so forth is when basically teachers have invested themselves in particular systems of yoga and are then trying to defend them uh, from criticism or perhaps assert them in certain situations as being the most efficacious and so forth where you get teachers often trying to control uh, the discourse around the type of yoga that they're teaching. You know, if a student is uh, questioning something and saying, well, why are we doing this particular practice? Of course, an easy answer might be, well, this text that we've been looking at, the Patanjali's Yoga Shastra, it, uh, you know, it teaches it and um, so it can offer justification on, on that level. Uh, I think as long as students are aware that when yoga teachings are being used in that way, you're getting a, a very particular um, interpretation of them that is not um, absolute, doesn't apply in all circumstances at all times and in all traditions, well, then they can 
then a student can pick and choose and sort of to follow that interpretation if they find it helpful. And that's why I think secular scholarship can help to educate uh, people and make a positive contribution to the culture around yoga simply by creating more open-mindedness about uh, different ideas around certain practices, different ideas about yoga, and uh, informing people. Uh, I think also about when you start, when someone starts to see that, you also start to see some of the vested interests that that are there when people defend a particular view of yoga that uh, can criticize others. So, yes, yeah, so I think secular scholarship can play an important role in, um, in educating people in the future about uh, their yoga practice, what they're doing, where the techniques come from, um, how they've been understood, and how they can be uh, adapted. On that note, I'm curious, from your vantage point as a scholar, how the interest for the kind of work that you're doing or any of your colleagues has uh, changed over time, you know, from the yoga community. And I want to ask about this because I, there's so much made and so much griping among some people about, you know, Instagram yoga and gym yoga. And, you know, once again, I think notions of purity, I, it seems to be that kind of imagery. You know, some people think that it's been contaminated or less pure but from from my perspective that's while all of that's true you know there is that and i'll i'll not attach the value judgment of pure impure but there we're seeing more of that kind of emphasis on physical practice but there also seems to be kind of a a growing interest from yoga practitioners in learning about the philosophy and in the history and i guess i'm curious as someone who's really in a position to see that up close and personal, whether it's attendance of, you know, workshops or conferences, requests to come on podcasts, speak, anything like that. How have you witnessed a change from the yoga community and the interest in, in this kind of work over, say, the last 10 years or 20 years? Yes, I think there is growing interest in the type of work uh, that we're doing. It also very much depends on context, so and that's that's important just for understanding yoga in itself. If you you know the, the hardest one of the hardest questions to answer is what is yoga, just you know, in, you know with no context, An incredibly difficult question to ask. As soon as you say, well, what is yoga in the Bhagavad Gita, or what is yoga in Patanjali's Yoga Shastra, or what is yoga? in the gym or in the yoga school that's down the road there, then you can start to give more specific answers to that. And I see that as very important in, um, in modern yoga, that there are people who are, who are not interested in history that are, that are um, quite happy to stretch their hamstrings and wonder why I do the work I do. Uh, and, and that's fine, but, but then there are people who, who take a, perhaps because the practice uh, affects them more deeply, take a, a stronger interest in it. They then uh, start to ask questions about um, where the techniques come from, what the teachings, you know, particularly terminology and so forth that they hear in class uh, mean on a deeper level. Um, so I think, again, secular scholarship can help in two ways there. Firstly, uh, for the student who, who takes a deeper interest and starts to become aware that there are different types of yoga and that there's really an ocean of yoga and history and opinions out there about it. Well, an, a, a broader understanding of yoga's history can help one to navigate one's way through that. You can sort of see that there are different traditions, that there are some salient features of yoga that usually over the centuries, yoga concerns the practice of meditation, that there are 
that's very prevalent in Patanjali's Yoga Shastra, but then there are discussions around yoga as uniting two things in uh, you know, tantric traditions, uh, and that these ideas uh, are still current in the way people talk about yoga today, and that they can often talk past each other simply because they, um, they have different uh, understandings of such terminology. So our work can help to help people to navigate their way through the vast diversity that's out there in regard to yoga. But on the other, other, other hand, our work can also help to broaden people's minds if they've been exposed to teachings that present particular ways, uh, particular methods of yoga. And usually these are sort of the more transnational systems such as Iyengar yoga or Ashtanga yoga. There's a, usually a very strong focus on a particular practice. And as students start to learn more about it, they realize that there are other practices and, 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 and other systems of yoga. Well, of course, um, the work we do should help them, give them a, a way of understanding those other traditions to see the differences between what they're doing and how others have done it and, and hopefully broaden their perspective that way. I might, might also say just on a more mundane level that, of course, the word yoga has a tremendous amount of baggage attached to it, you know, 2,000 years of history, which I think is largely responsible for a lot of the richness that we see in uh, the teachings that have, that have um, pervaded, you know, starting to pervade our culture. And maybe the point that I made in addition to that you know, towards the end uh, of what I was saying was that uh, one of the extraordinary things uh, you know, about yoga's history is the amount of written material uh, that has survived uh, from its past. Uh, there's a tremendous uh, number of texts, traditions, teachings, and so forth, and that this, is a, this can be a, a rich resource for people who want to learn more about yoga, who want to understand more about its history, its practice, uh, you know, how it's been adapted by people from different circumstances, some of them devoting their lives to it, others taking on a very active life in society. And that's something that can't be ignored if, if one wants to uh, delve deeper into, into the practice and uh, theory of yoga. What's your recommendation in terms of kind of a short list? And you can throw out primary or secondary texts as well as primary ones, but kind of for people who are, you know, good entry points. And I don't simply mean beginners. Maybe you can throw out a, you know, beginner, intermediate, advanced text, but just for people who really do want to dive deeper, what are the, the great secondary and primary texts that you would recommend or the great scholars that you would recommend? Well, for primary texts, I think Prasvatanjali Yoga Shastra is very important. And Dr. Philip Mas is, is, I think, doing the most exciting uh, research Patanjali's yoga over the last 10 years. His work, as well as many other scholars who are working on yoga, is available on academia.edu. Um, so if one signs up to that website, you can download his articles uh, free of charge. Tantra, I would recommend Dr. Sondev Vasudeva and his work. Uh, again, he's available on academia.edu. Professor Dominic Goodall for understanding Tantra more broadly. Uh, Somdev has written um, some books and articles on yoga more specifically. Uh, uh, Dominic Goodall, Alexis Sanderson, Shannon Hatley and so forth have all written articles more broadly on Tantra if one wants to understand that religion, particularly the Shaiva tradition of it, uh, in, a, in a fuller way. 
Kohata and Raja Yoga. There's, of course, Dr. James Mallinson. His work is uh, fundamental to, to many of the um, discoveries and advances that are being made in that field. And then I suppose moving through to modern yoga, of course, Dr. Mark Singleton, his work is uh, Dr. Elizabeth D. Michaelis, her work, uh, the history of modern yoga was sort of created the field, uh, the sort of use of um, modern historical methods and anthropology and so forth to understand um, what's been happening in yoga over the last 150 years. Dr. Suzanne Newcomb, uh, her work it's very good. Again, it's available on uh, academia.edu. She's written a couple of uh, um, very good general articles on the history of modern yoga, but then some more specific articles, one recently on the practice of kaya kalpa, rejuvenating the body, uh, how it was understood in 20th century India. And that, of course, takes us to the side of the, or the interaction between yoga and um, Indian medicine over the over the years. And there. Dagmar Wiasik is leading the way with her project called Ayu Yog, which is based at Vienna University, that has a website, ayuyog.org, I think, and her articles are available on academia.edu. Her husband, Dominic Wiasik, has written extensively on Ayurveda, um, so his work is very important. Off the top of my head, that would be a, a, a sort of a basic reading list. That's a comprehensive list. Thank you very much. I want to give you an opportunity to let folks know where they can find out about you and any workshops or events that you have or any upcoming talks that might be available to the public or anything you have on your website. Mainly through the uh, blog post that's run by my wife, Jacqueline Hargreaves, uh, that uh, there are uh, regular updates on our research there, and it has a Facebook page. Uh, it's called the Luminescent. That's a good way to keep in touch with our teaching, the workshops that we do, the conferences and the lectures that we give, as well as new discoveries and so forth. The website of the Hatha Yoga Project, it's hyp.soaz.ac.uk. I think that uh, gives information about the project, including the proposal, as well as the events that we've had, um, a workshop at SOAS. Um, it has a fledgling blog post as well um, with only two or three posts at the moment, but we hope to, to uh, expand that. Yes, yeah, so otherwise my academia.edu page provides my most recent and important uh, articles. Another point of interest for people who have an interest in the more sort of scholarly work being done on yoga is uh, the up-and-coming Journal of Yoga Studies that will, be, that's, that will be launched actually in about a week's time. There are several founders uh, that have been working on this over the last year, and it will be launched in London, Delhi, and uh, Kyoto. It's a collaboration between uh, various institutions as well, so as London University, also Alberta University, AMRAE, which is a, an organisation that uh, fund and promote um, research on yoga. This will be a place, the Journal of Yoga Studies will be a place where peer-reviewed scholarship will be published. It's going to launch next month with two very good articles by um, PhD students in America, one on modern yoga, looking at uh, uh, the reception of yoga in America in the late uh, 19th, early 20th century, 
and the other on focusing on iconography in around the 15th, 16th century in Hampi, the center of the Vijayanagara Empire at that time, looking at the complex postures that the iconography reveals and then placing that within the context of the broader context of the history of asana in yoga. So that's also something for people to keep an eye on and it will have a strong presence on the internet. The publications are open access, so they can be freely downloaded. And yes, the website, which is journalofyogastudies.org, is another place where one can can access uh, articles and information about it. Wonderful. And we can include these links in the show notes as well. Well, Jason, I want to thank you so much for your time. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed as someone who loves to talk about all this. And I know that there are a lot of people out there in the yoga community who love these conversations or who might be new to them and now very interested who will enjoy this as well. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Adrian, for the invitation. And uh, if there are any follow-up questions, uh, please do encourage people to contact me either through through the Luminescent or through my email at uh, SOAS, which is available on the SOAS website. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being receptive to, I think it's wonderful you're receptive to people, you know, from the public, you know, the way I just reached out to you through your SOAS email. So, that link between scholars and practitioners that's growing really is a huge contribution to the yoga community. So thank you so much for being so willing to have these conversations. Yes. Thank you very much. 